Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know how we're supposed to live, rightly dividing the Word of God. Instead of approaching the Scriptures with what we already believe, trying to find evidence for it, we want to find out what the Bible says so we can live and believe what the Scriptures say, which will result in blessings in each one of our lives. Now, the first question that we have today was asked at the end of our last uh, Q&A, which was last Saturday. And the question was, the scripture, some, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. Does that speak of a Calvinistic mindset? Uh, we, when we look at certain passages, it's hard for us to subtract it from a doctrine that we have heard. Someone has explained something to us their own way. And then when a word is used, we fit in that doctrine. That's where we get the word indoctrinate from. You kind of change the way people think. You indoctrinate them so that when something's said, they don't listen to what it says, but they read things into it. That has happened. I'm not saying that the Calvinists are indoctrinating us. I'm saying that this kind of a thing has happened to us when we've heard uh, words like chosen used by Calvinists who say, well, anytime you see the word chosen, it means unilaterally chosen by God from before the foundations of the world to be a vessel of honor or dishonor. That's the dictionary definition of the Calvinist for chosen. But the passages don't tell us what God is choosing. I think of Ephesians 1. We were chosen before the foundations of the world to be pure and holy uh, in him. That chosen, again, it's used, it's used like unilaterally chosen from before the foundations of the world to be a vessel of honor. That's how they read it, but that's not what it says. In fact, the statement itself is made to the faithful, and the faithful are chosen because God knew that they would, would make a commitment and follow him. He knew that they would believe we are saved by grace through faith, not of our works, lest anyone should boast. Now, the Calvinists would say that that's the process by which people are getting saved. We believe it's free will. It's an honest choice that we have, and we do not believe it is meritorious. There's no merit in us receiving Christ. We're simply receiving a free gift. Never have you worked for a gift. If you had to work for something, then you've earned it. So faith cannot be works. It has to be uh, it has to be an act by which God now chooses those who are faithful as it is there in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's just take a quick look at this passage. Um, let me explain the, the parable first. It's in a parable of Jesus, and it's the parable of a king that wants to have a wedding feast for his son. And he goes and he sends invitations out to friends and to family, but none of them respond. So he sends them out again, and they mock and laugh at them and even kill some of his servants. And so then he gets an army and takes vengeance on those who killed his servants. And then he sends out his servants again to anyone good or bad that wants to come. When he gets to the feast, there's one there without a wedding garment. And he says, friend, how did you get in without a wedding garment? And he says, bind them hand and foot and throw them outside of the wedding feast where there will be a darkness and gnashing of teeth. And then he sums it up. Many are called, for many are called, but few are chosen. And I just kind of want to show you that here in this, uh, oops, wrong place. All right, so I'll show you this here. Uh, so if many are called, but few are chosen. And this is in the parable, it's a rather long parable. 
in the parable of the wedding feast. Okay, and so he arranges the wedding. He invites people in. Um, they mock and kill his servants, which would be in this parable. Let's just talk about who these people are now. So right here, we get many are called, but few are chosen. Many called, few chosen. Um, so let's talk about the players here. So those that were invited to the wedding feast at first were Israel. The invitation went out, but they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they even persecuted some who are among the church. And God will judge them for persecuting them. Now we know that all of Israel is going to be saved. We know that the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and then all of them will be saved. That's uh, uh, Romans 20, Romans 11, 25, 26, I think. Um, we also know that that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And we might be reaching that time where the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, uh, the ones that he goes out, the good and the bad that he calls in are all of us, the people in the world that have come to Christ. We were given an invitation, whether good or bad, and all we have to do is receive and believe and stand. First Corinthians 15 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And Paul says, I give you what I received, that which you stand in, by which you believe, by which you are saved. So we are saved by hearing the gospel and receiving it. So when a Calvinist reads this, or someone who has talked to a Calvinist for a long time, you think, okay, many are called, but few are chosen. This means that God calls people, but only a few are chosen, by him unilaterally to be vessels of honor. That's the way they read it. And it's hard once you've read it that way to, to, to take that out of it. But that's not what it says. Many are called, but few are chosen. The invitation in the parable went out to many. And those who responded to the invitation were chosen. You choose them into your house to give them a dinner, to give them a feast. And so God calls out for people to be saved and God chooses those who by faith respond. Now, why would God choose those who by faith would respond? Because he chooses us now to be adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. He chooses us now that we've responded. He now chooses us that we can be sinless, righteous in the future which is an absolutely amazing promise there in Ephesians 1.8, chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy and pure. That's me. That's you. But it never says, it, all it says is chosen by him. It doesn't say what qualifies the choosing. But almost every time we are told that we are chosen by God, then we get the idea that unilaterally God chose us from before the foundations of the world, that we would be vessels of honor. We take in that Calvinist mindset. But, but and, and by the way, this is the way that you have to look at all of the passages that are being used to prove Calvinism. Because we've heard their dictionary so much, we can see how they read it. But when you start reading it for what it says, what does it say? What doesn't it say? It, it does, it says you're chosen, but, but what is the means by which God chooses someone to become holy and pure? The Bible tells us those who believed it never says God unilaterally chose people before the foundation of the world to be saved. The Bible never says that. It's added in, it's inferred in by the Calvinists in the passages that they come up with, but the Bible clearly teaches us that we have choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. 
What if, if if I held out two things to my child and said, choose which one you want, and they went to choose one, I go, nope, I have this one for you to choose. The choice doesn't make sense. If I'm forcing someone, if someone, if I'm commanding that all men everywhere would repent, and then I'm saying, but you can't repent, then why even offer it? Why are many called if only the elect are chosen? If only the elect can be saved? Now, in reality, yeah, only the ones that are chosen are the ones who are going to be saved. But they're the ones who by faith believed in God and they are saved. But why give the invitation? What's the purpose of an invitation? There's so many things that just don't make sense from that, to me, from that Calvinistic mindset. Now, I'll go back and say the things that I'd said before. Um, have, I have, um, I'm not throwing Calvinists out of the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that they're not Christians. They are brothers and sisters in Christ who have believed on him. Um, they just believe something that, first of all, came on the scene from Augustine, who had been an Gnostic before that, who believed in determinism. And Augustine entered determinism. You can't find it in the church. You find clearly in the church before Augustine, the idea of choice and believing and receiving in order to be saved. And then Calvin and Luther relied heavily on Augustine to come up with what are the points of Calvinism, which really are, um, imagine if God chose one person to be damned and, and tormented forever and one person to be saved for his own purposes, but nothing to do with that person. God created you just so you would suffer then you would not like God either. If you were created just to suffer, you had no chance to be saved. But if man is, if man is doomed and lost and God goes on a rescue mission and dies on the cross that to give a choice to anyone who would respond to that light of Jesus Christ, a chance to be saved, then it becomes something that is very powerful. And you say, well, the Bible does say God made some vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Yes, but it doesn't say what the condition is. In fact, it does say it. It goes on to talk about those who believe in Christ. It says it right at the end of chapter 9 in Daniel in Romans chapter 9. Let me go there and I'll read it. I did this last time when I went to Romans and showed you this. I think I did it last time anyway. Um, just the last couple of verses here in it, um, he talks about what he means in context. And remember, context is, is everything. Context is king, right? And so verse 31, it says, this is after saying, God's making vessels of honor and dishonor. He says, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. So because they didn't seek it by faith, they are now a vessel of dishonor. They could have by faith and they would have been a vessel of honor. But as it were, by the works of the law. So we know works can't save. For they stumble at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the end of the chapter where it talks about the vessels of honor and dishonor. It's those who believe in him who will be saved. So yes, many are called. God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. But few are chosen. This is saying the same thing that Jesus said when he said, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that find it. And narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are that find it. It is 
heart-wrenching when we think about those who do not believe. All right, so um, thank you very much for that question at the end of our study uh, last week. Um, I was also asked another question uh, at the end of the study last week from, I can't remember the name of the the person who wrote it, but they asked, uh, I'm trying to live a radical lifestyle for Jesus, but every time I do, I seem to fail. Is there any help for this? Has anybody else gone through that? So that's the question that we were asked. And I did my study that we're going to be doing tonight off of that question. So how you go from a nominal Christian walk to a strong Christian walk. We'll be covering that tonight. Um, The title of the message is Three Passages for a Strong Christian Walk. So if you're listening to this in the future and you want to look it up, you can look that up. And I talk about um, three positive passages that help us and, and how we go through the process of making next year the year that we become a strong Christian believer. It's not by New Year's resolutions, by the way, but the way that we can become strong Christian leaders. So it's good to see you guys here. Uh, those of you that have joined me, uh, most of you, at least at this point, uh, from YouTube, we'll see if Facebook kicks in here after a while. Seems like there might still have been a change from Facebook where we aren't getting questions from them um, all of the time. Sometimes it seems like we do and sometimes we don't. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I want to welcome you. Um, I hope that you are blessed um, by what you're watching. So we have a question from Jari to start. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, uh, question. Let me say we'll do this. Question. Balaam's donkey, um, Balaam, Balaam's donkey was in the, all right, let me see if I can read this first. I'll try to put it to where it makes sense. Okay, so he's asking if Balaam's donkey ha- had the capacity to speak, were all an- did all anim- were all animals made um, with the capacity to be able to speak? Um, and then it goes on to say, um, and angels or a demon, since um, Balaam opened the door through false. Maybe this got submitted before you were ready to, Jari. I'm not sure. Um, but I'll tell you what we learn from the animals that talked in the Bible. So we have the serpent that was more cunning than any animal and it spoke to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, so there is a creature that spoke was this possessed by Satan to be able to do so? Because we know that Satan is the dragon. The dragon of old is the serpent that's going to be thrown out of heaven. And that's Satan. So we know that. Um, Balaam is empowered by God through an angel or by God himself to have his donkey speak to him. Um, Balaam wouldn't listen to God. So God spoke to him through a donkey. And maybe God's still doing that today. People won't listen to God, so God speaks through a donkey. Remember Balaam had asked God if he could go to Balak and curse Israel? What a prayer that must have been. And remember, Balaam's a false prophet. He's a soothsayer. But Balaam goes to God and says, can I curse your people? And God says, no. And you say, well, how come a soothsayer hear from God? Listen, there are all kinds of things that are not easy to make common sense of things. But he goes back and tells them, I can't go with you. And then they say, too bad, because we have a lot of money. I'm paraphrasing. And he goes back to God and says, God, can I go? And God says, go ahead and go. When God says, don't do something, don't do something, then all of a sudden you feel a green light to go and do it. Still don't do it. 
And so Balaam goes on the way and his donkey sees an angel of the Lord ready to kill him. And so the donkey pins his foot against a wall and he starts beating the donkey and the donkey finally says, why are you beating me? I've always been a good donkey to you. And so then they have a little bit of a conversation, but, and then he opens his eyes and he sees the angel. So God did that in a specific point in time. There's no reason for us to think that during the days of Balaam that animals could talk or that animals could talk kind of, um, I don't know, Disneyland style, um, Disney style in the Garden of Eden. Okay. Um, we want, when, when we're making, when we're making decisions to, to find doctrine or theology, we want to make sure that we don't infer on the passage. And so if you said, well, the serpent talked in the garden, Balaam talked, and so animals must have had the ability to be able to talk. That's inferring something on the passage that isn't there. And you wouldn't want that to become theology. People do that all of the time. The passage where Jesus said, when Jesus read out of Isaiah, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. Um, I heard someone say last week that what that meant was to preach the gospel to the poor in spirit, to heal the brokenhearted in spirit, to, um, to preach those who mourn in spirit. But they're inferring that in spirit on the passage. Maybe, maybe God did mean to preach the gospel to the poor and the poor in spirit, to the brokenhearted and the brokenhearted in spirit. Maybe there's truth that it is in spirit. But if you want to follow things theologically, you, you want to you wanna handle the word of God properly, then you don't infer things on the text. That's highly problematic. And as a pastor, it's so easy to start. You want something fresh. You want to really speak to people. So it's so easy to start inferring on the text. So you come up with something new. But the problem is you might be saying something the Bible doesn't say. And so the Bible says the things that are secret belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. So God's revealed certain things to us, and God has said, said so much in the Bible that I could spend another lifetime talking about the things that, that God said in the Bible, their importance and their power, putting pictures together, and still not get through it all. I don't need to infer things on a passage to make that something uh, that is, um, to make it say something that it didn't say, so that we can believe something that the Bible doesn't believe. There are secret things. No secret things belong to God. All right. So uh, I appreciate that, um, Jari. And by the way, when you're submitting your questions, before you submit it, that might have been an accident, okay, before you had it ready. Before you submit it, go ahead and read it and reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense. And then we'll go ahead and take it in and read it. If, um, if they don't make sense, um, I'll probably just start going, kind of going on to the next question because I have to make some guesses on what you're, what you're trying to say. And if that happens to you, then just rewrite your question. Just take some time to rewrite your question, all right? So I appreciate you guys, appreciate your questions. Uh, they are so helpful to the people who are watching these videos even later on to be able to go through here or maybe listening to Truth Quest, uh, Truth Quest podcast while they're driving. As you're asking these questions and we're looking at the scriptures together, uh, it is so helpful to people to be able to do this. So I appreciate your questions. So John says, and also appreciate you guys staying on task, kind of talking about the things that we're talking about uh, rather than, um, let me see if I can do this. All right, so I'm going to, well, I'll go back here. 
All right, we'll go here. All right. So um, John says, hi, Pastor. So very sorry for the loss of your aunt, but glad she um, is, uh, radiates in the presence before the Father. Thank you very much. And I did read that passage out of Psalms uh, 34. And um, my uncle doing a little bit, doing, doing rough, as you can imagine, but um, doing a little better now. Uh, why do we not experience miracles like the beginning? Also, could you? And so I'll, I'll wait to see the rest of that. But let, let me answer that now. Uh, when you read the Bible and, and, and the ministry of Jesus, you see all these miracles taking place. And you think, well, miracles must be happening all the time. And why aren't we seeing a bunch of miracles happening today? Why are we, uh, why, why does it happen so much? But when you go back to the how long the scriptures were, a 1500 year period, and the amount of miracles that there were, and some of them were certainly put together in a really a short confined spot, like, like the, uh, the, the, the plagues of Egypt, um, like the ministry of Jesus. But not all of them were. Uh, they were over a period of time. You can take the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters. And I think there's 31 miracles. At least it's something like that. And so um, when we see miracles happening all the time in the Bible, that's because we're getting God moving throughout history. So we see all of these miracles. Miracles are still happening today. And I think at an unprecedented rate, there um, is a book called Miracles, and let me see. Um, I think it is. Um, I think it's Craig Keener who wrote who wrote these books on miracles. Um, let me go on here. I want to go look at my library on Audible because I've got um, a book that I listened to um, by him on miracles. Let me see who this is. Um, it's got a more monster. Okay. Da, 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 da. Um, I think it's Craig Keener. Miracles by Craig Keener. I think it's a two-volume set. And, um, oh, there it is. Miracles Today. Yes, by Craig Keener. Miracles Today. All right. Uh, it's a two-volume set. And uh, he has left out. Go Listen to, um, listen to the book or, or buy it and read it. And he has documented miracles that happened. And he's only doing documented miracles. And he's got another work on miracles that has more miracles in it besides Miracles Today. So we just don't see God moving. And there were so many that were submitted that could be documented that he had to, um, that he had to, to stop taking them. I myself, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with lung cancer. They, it was stage one or two, I can't remember. It was either just one spot or in the lymph nodes around it. And, um, and they, they went in to get it and they got the, it's on, was on our lung. One side of your lungs has three lobes. The other one has four. It was one on the side with four. They took one of the lobes out when they bi they had biopsied it, obviously, because they're not going to remove a lung without bi biopsying it and finding cancer in it. So they removed the lung and they, they checked it and there was no cancer in it. Now we had anointed her with oil and we had prayed for her and there is a documented case. And all the doctor could say was this happens sometimes. So if it happens sometimes, then you're seeing miracles, right? Now, some may say, well, maybe they made a mistake on the biopsy side. Yeah, maybe they did make a mistake on the biopsy side. But you would think that they would check and double check that. So they're not doing unnecessary surgeries. It's much more likely, and this is crazy, that it was a miracle. And so it's one of the reasons that doctors are more likely 
to be Christians than those who go in other fields of science because they see miracles. So there are miracles uh, that are around today. And, and I'll wait for your follow through, John P., uh, who asked that question because you said, why do we not experience this like at the beginning also, and also could you, and then it drops off. So we'll look to see if you uh, put in anything else here in the future, okay? All right, John Pete, so thank you. So miracles are happening today. The reason they seem so intense in the Bible is because it is God in intervening in history, and that is miraculous. Uh, and uh, Empress Kimberly, good to see you. Happy New Year, thank you. Uh, could you explain when to apply 2 Chronicles 19.2? Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? All right, let's take a look at that. I'm not sure I remember what that passage is. So 2 Chronicles, right? 2 Chronicles 19.2, 2 Chronicles 19.2. All right, so let me just see if I can get, I'm gonna put this up on the screen here and we will, we'll read this a little bit together. So we're gonna come back um, so verse one, then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house, Jerusalem, and Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him and said to the king, Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you in that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So, um, I'm trying to think of what the, um, let me see if I can just go back to the last chapter um, and see where, where in this chapter, how he helps those who hate the Lord. Hey, oh, so Ahab dies in battle and Jehoshaphat becomes king. Um, and so uh, let's see, let's just read a couple of last verses in the last chapter. Maybe we can get it from context. Now, a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. And so he died. And, and, uh, and he, so he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and take me out of this battle, for I am wounded. The battle increased that day, and the king of Israel prepared himself upon his chariots facing the Syrians until evening. And about that time, sunset, he died. That is Ahab that died. All right, so I'm not sure, sorry to do this, especially after I spent so much time on this question, but I'm not sure, Kimberly, what things he did. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate you, hate the Lord? This is something I'm gonna to have to take some time on. Uh, we may look at it in our as, as our first question in our next one, uh, so that I could go back and look and see, how was it that he helped the wicked and loved those who hate the Lord? How is it that, that Jehoshaphat, as he became king, did that. And I'm not sure without doing a bunch of research and I don't wanna do it here now, all right? So I appreciate your question. And if you could clarify that, if you know what that is and you can have a follow-up, Kimberly, then I would love to be able to look at that, all right? Miracles is because we lack faith in. Um, so Jari says, um, miracles, because we just talked about miracles, it's because we lack faith. And then he says, just kidding. Um, yeah, in a way, Jari, just kidding, right? But you do have to have faith. But there's an act of faith by which you go to God and ask him to heal you. And there are people that don't have faith. They just don't believe God will heal them, so they don't pray. There's people that don't pray fervently for their children because they just don't believe that God's going to intervene. 
So that they, there, there is a, a means of a lack of faith by which we don't see miracles. Remember, Jesus went to Nazareth, his hometown, but couldn't do many miracles there. Was that was he trying to, you know, people, somebody brought him a blind person, tried to heal him, but you guys don't have enough faith, so I can't heal you? I know Kenneth Copeland, Hagen, Charles Capps, Casey Treat would like you to think that's what it was saying, but it's not. They didn't have faith. They didn't bring a blind person to Jesus. Jesus couldn't do many miracles there because they didn't have faith to approach him with their needs. So when we lack faith, we don't bring those things to God to ask him to be able to help, really believing that he can do it, which of course God can do anything. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, so we, I think we get the second part of this question from John P. Uh, John says, uh, thank you, Pastor Robert. You confirmed what I was um, explaining to some friends. You did it much better though. Well, thank you, John, I appreciate that. All right, so um, we have another question from Rod. And um, Rod says, uh, Matthew 24, 34, do you think Jesus was referring to the corporate spirit of the Antichrist instead of a particular generation or the church age as this generation? All right, well, we've looked at this here recently, but let's go there, let's go there again. Let's go take a look at uh, Matthew 24, uh, 34. All right, so obviously Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the last days. There's something coming that is worse than anything that this world has ever seen, worse than anything that it is ever going to see. And then in verse 34, in the, is it the parable of the fig tree? Yep, parable of the fig tree. Um, he talks about a specific generation. And I'm really glad that you brought this up because um, I had another, I think I had another question on one of the YouTube comments about this generation being the generation that was alive in their day, that they were going to be wiped out because of course that generation was, right? They lived in Jerusalem and they were wiped out. The Christians, interestingly enough, in history left Jerusalem. So the collective group of Christians, when they saw armies surrounding Jerusalem, left and, and weren't killed. They, weren't, they didn't face the whole slaughter. Now Jesus has just finished talking to them about the coming of the Son of Man, um, the, the, the birth pains that lead up to that, okay? And um, he's talked about Jerusalem surrounded by armies, right? Do you talk about that yet, or is that still in the future here? Um, he talks about it in one way in Matthew 24 and another way in Luke 21. In Luke 21, he's talking about, he's talking about 8070. In Matthew 24, he's talking about the end of the age. And if you look at them, there's two different things that trigger. Don't go back into your house. Don't leave the, and just leave here in the field. Don't go back home. Just leave. There's two different things that trigger them in each one of them. So um, this is the parable of the fig tree. Let's go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. Uh, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. And Luke says in Luke 21, and all the trees. So if the fig tree is the nation of Israel, then all the, the trees would have to be the other nations because you would have to take all the trees, you have to carry it across in order for it to make sense. Could he just be saying, could this just be, could this not be Israel? Could this just be in general when you see all of these things happen? Now learn a parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become uh, tender and put forth leaves, know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, and some call that the convergence, that's where everything's coming together now. It's not one of the particular birth pains. They're all humming at the same time. 
It's the contraction of all contractions, the birth pain of all birth pains, and the Messiah is going to come out of it. When you see all of these things happen, know that it's near at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generations will by no means pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What a promise from Jesus. This is Jesus teaching. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away because he is the Lord of glory and flesh. So um, when he's talking about the generation that will not pass away, it's the generation that sees all of these things that come to pass. The nation of Israel is back in the land. Maybe the temple is starting to be rebuilt. Um, Israel has become a cup of trembling around the world. There is pestilence. There is earthquakes. Uh, there is, we, the Euphrates River now is drying up to make way for the kings of the east, um, which was what the Bible says about the Euphrates River drying up, and it is drying up today. So when all of these things happen, when you see it, it's, 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 it's all happening, then know the end is near. I believe that we are coming through a birth pain now, I don't know that I could say all of these things are happening, maybe. And if that were, were so, then the generation that is alive today won't see death. And so that could be anywhere from, you know, tomorrow to 120 years. So, and, and is, this birth came, is this birth pain going to lay off and then to have some more time and space before another birth pain shows up? And then you would have to reset the clock. And, and I think people have a tendency, whenever a birth pain arises, Jesus said, these things are always gonna happen. Wars and rumors of war and pestilences and earthquakes are always gonna happen. But these are the beginning of sorrows. So they happen more mellow and then they get more intense, more mellow and they get more intense. And that's what we see in the world. Things are getting more and more radical. Technology is catching up to what the book of Revelation says can happen. And we'll be talking about that in our study of Revelation in uh, on our Wednesday night studies, which will resume this coming up Wednesday night, Lord willing, by the way. Um, so yeah, all of these things, I don't believe it is, I, I, I'm not a preterist. I don't believe that all of these things were fulfilled in 70 AD. There's a global aspect to it. And, and they'll try to say, well, that was just because from someone in Jerusalem, they saw it as the entire world. But again, that's inferring something on the text. Rather than reading the text for what it said with this global aspect, you're trying to say from their perspective it was global. Now you're inferring something on the text. And unless there's a good reason to do that, then you don't want to do it. And a good reason might be because you want to make it say what you want it to say. That might be a good reason to you, but it by, by no means is good Bible study to be able to do that. All right? So um, thank you very much, um, Rod, for that question. Now, oh, now your question. Let me go back to it. Sorry. I did all of that, then didn't get to your question. Do you think that Jesus is referring to the corporate spirit of the Antichrist instead of a particular generation or the church age as this generation? <clears throat> no, I do not believe that he is speaking of the spirit of the Antichrist or um, the church age as this generation. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you have to come back and make it turn that into a metaphor. I think that when we look back, it will be fulfilled as it is. Now, do we have precedence for this? That we don't have to come in and start to make metaphors of everything. When something is clear, then we want to take it as clear. And the precedent that we have is fulfilled prophecy. There are hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, even over a thousand fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And they are fulfilled literally almost every single time. Try to think of a prophecy that wasn't fulfilled literally. 
I will call my son out of Egypt. Jesus was called in Egypt and came out of Egypt. He will be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and he shall be called Emmanuel, that is God with us. A virgin bore a child, and he called his name Joshua, salvation, and he was called Emmanuel. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Just go back to prophecies in the Bible, and they are fulfilled literally. So why would God take us right to the point we are now, where all the prophecies are being fulfilled literally up to this point, and then change all of a sudden and start fulfilling them metaphorically into the future? God is certainly going to keep them moving forward. You say, well, why does the apocryphal writings like Daniel and, and Revelation have so much that, that is signified? We're told in Revelation that he's going to write through signs. We're told that. And so why are there signs? Well, it could be, well, this is a book about an emperor who is killed and destroyed and it's given to all of the churches in the seven regions when Domitian is the emperor and is persecuting the church. So it was written in signs to keep safe those who would be caught with the book of Revelation in their possession. That's at least one of the, the things that we can look at and say, this is why God wrote it the way that he wrote. And so we wanna see what would this mean to them? And we get some clarity when we look at what it could mean to them in their day, and why did he write these in, in such different ways? Instead of calling him an emperor, he calls him the beast. And he's got, you know, instead of he's ruling over 10 nations and um, he takes out three of the kings that are ruling with him, three of the 10 that are ruling with him. Instead of saying that, it says he had, 10, you know, it was 10 heads and um, seven uh, and uh, 10 horns or, or however it is. We'll get there here pretty soon. So he's talking in significant ways. Um, and that's why that's that way. But we still look to, for it to be fulfilled literally. We look for what they represent and look for them to be fulfilled literally. And by the way, if you take prophecy in the Old Testament literally, which every time it is fulfilled, it is fulfilled literally then you are going to be a pre-trib rapture because that's just the way it lays out. You have to take passages and turn them into metaphors. Um, you're going to believe that Israel is, that God has restored Israel. If you're post-trib or you're all-millennial or post-millennial, then you don't believe God is keeping his promises to Israel now. To you, it's just a coincidence that Israel, or maybe even an annoyance, that Israel is back in the land. But God said it would happen, promised it would happen, and it has happened, and it's literal. And again, we see prophecies fulfilled literal. So Rod, I would not begin to try to look for metaphors of what this generation would be. I think the metaphor to look at there is what is the, the fig tree? Is that Israel? When Israel became a nation, now we've got a generation. And so the longest you could have anything go now would be until what? Um, 120 years after 48. So 68, 2068 would be the longest you could have it go 120 years. I think that's the longest anybody can take a biblical age. His days shall not go past 120. So I think that's the longest anybody can push it out. I'm not saying that's what I believe about it. I'm just saying if it, if it is Israel becoming a nation, some could go to 67 when they took control of Jerusalem, push that out 120 years. Some may say it's when they take complete control of Jerusalem, which are taking more and more control of it. And that's not done yet. And it will be 120 years from then. So, so people could start playing with date setting. It's all, it's always a problem. Um, but be assured the generation that sees all these things 
whatever that is, will not pass away. It's going to happen fast. When it starts happening, it's going to happen quickly. All right. So thank you very much, Rod, for your question. I appreciate it. Um, okay. So Kimberly has a question, the answer here uh, to what Jehoshaphat was doing in helping the wicked and helping those who hated the Lord. I think he tried to help Ahab by dressing him in his robes to fool the attacking army and to draw the attack away from Ahab. Didn't work though. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, I, I, I see that, Kimberly. So, I was trying to remember. Yeah, so Jehoshaphat goes out on the battlefield. I'm gonna really, I'm really curious now to go out and read this because it seems to me that Jehoshaphat didn't want to do it, but he did it anyway. And that Ahab ended up dying. And so basically he was saying um, that God didn't love, and let me see if I can go back and find your original question here, Kimberly. All right, and, and we can answer in line of that. Okay, here we go. So um, if that is the case, and I think it is, um, you say, Happy New Year, and Happy New Year, thank you. Uh, could you explain when to apply 2 Chronicles 2, uh, 92? Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? So if indeed he's helping Ahab, and I remember some, I, I'm trying to piece all the pieces together. Sometimes the wheels in the old brain work a little bit slowly. Um, that um, the Bible says God began to hate those who do wickedly. So God does, God loved the entire world. And God loved Ahab, but Ahab became a wicked person and God began to hate him and God was going to destroy him and God did destroy him. And Ahab got in the way of what God was doing. Now we live in a day when we represent Christ through the church age. We are to love our enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So we are to love them. But I don't think that we should do anything to prop them up in their wickedness. I think that would be the application. We don't want to prop them up in their wickedness. So he was trying to prop Ahab up in his wickedness. So I don't want to support the evil. And if, if there are people around me that the Lord began to hate, which is the right theology when we're thinking about how God could hate someone, he didn't always hate them, but because of their wicked deeds, he began to hate them. And there's a passage that says that. Um, then I don't want to prop them up. I'm, I'm not going to give money to um, for an organization that supports killing a baby in the womb. I'm not going to prop them up in that way. I, I'm going to, if they're to be, you know, to, to, to run out of, I'm not to try to find a way. If they're to be out of business and God's trying to bring them out of business, I don't want to try to prop them up because God's trying to stop it. So I think that's the application. I think that's how it applies. Um, we do not want to be supporting something that is um, godless, we want to support those things that are righteous and good. Uh, there's a lot more questions we could go into on that, but for now, I'm going to move on. Kimberly, if you have a follow-up question on it, then please go ahead and ask that. Thank you for the clarity, by the way, on that passage. Now, I, I still want to go back and, and read it because there's something about Jehoshaphat not wanting to do it, but did it anyway. So he, he finally made a decision uh, to do it. All right. Um, so, yeah, what was it? What was it? Keeping it real. Keeping it real says, um, Gary Hamrick made a joke about that in a sermon I was listening to yesterday. I cracked up. 
um, thought of you. Uh, uh, all right. Um, let's see. What was the what was the joke that Gary Hamrick made? Um, all right. Let me know what the joke is that Gary Hamrick made. I, I'd love to know that. We just put up a video on our YouTube channel of Gary Hamrick when he was at our conference um, this year or in March of this year. And we're putting up um, little videos of people that have spoken at our church over the last few years, little thank you videos, um, highlights from 2020, 2020, 21 and 22. We're doing that through the first few months of of this year on our YouTube channel. Um, uh, So, So, so Jari's asking a question about the angels. We had some questions a while back about that. So it's a, a follow-up. Um, do cherubs really have four-faced creatures? Uh, if so, is it like a conjoined twin or more like, um, represent, yeah. Well, I know there's four, not three. I don't, I think, I don't think it's a representation of the Trinity. Um, I, I have no idea if it's like conjoined twins. I have no idea how God brought all of those together. Now, I should say there are scholars who believe that the seraphim and the cherubim that are mentioned are represented by these animals for certain reasons. The lion, predatory animals, the cattle, domesticated animals, the eagle, winged animals that fly, and the um, man, man who walks on the earth. And the water is not represented in this throne room that you see these angels and that the six wings that they have and the eight wings that they have represent different things, but they are representations of the angels that are really there, that he wasn't really seeing the angels there. Um, I don't think that most theologians or scholars would think that. I think most of them think they're seeing something that he was trying to explain, which is hard to explain, and he tried his best to explain it, but there are certainly people who would, who would see it that way. But as far as what it's like, who knows, Jari? We'll, we'll, we'll figure out when we get there. All right. So Rod has um, another question. Um, Rod says, what is the significance of the rocks being split at the crucifixion? Thanks, Rod. I appreciate that question. So we just covered this passage in our study of the book of Luke. We've been, I think we've got 98 or, or 99 studies in the book of Luke since we started it. And we just did three or four studies around the crucifixion. And we, we had a study called the things that happened around the cross. And by that, I mean the veil being torn into the earthquake that split the rocks, the graves being opened, um, the um, so the, those kind of things that happened around the cross. And we had seven of them that we looked at in, in, a, in our study. I guess it was our very last study, if you're interested in that, our very last study in the book of Luke. Uh, but here, you're asking about the significance of the box being split open. Um, I think it's the significance of the earthquake. The earthquake is so severe at that time that the rocks were split open. And we pointed out that they have now found evidence that there was an earthquake in Jerusalem in the early 30s. This is fairly recent that they found this out, 2010 or 11, somewhere around there, that they found evidence uh, for this earthquake. Before that, they said there had not been an earthquake. So again, we find out, I'm not saying that that's evidence that there was an earthquake when Jesus died. I'm just saying it fits. Again, it fits. It What the Bible says could have happened. And I think that's pretty amazing. Um, I think the graves are opened because there's victory over the grave. And I think the earthquake signifies 
the transforming power of God. Now, God's even splitting rocks at his death. What happened when Jesus died on that cross was a redemption paid for mankind, which was an amazing thing to have given to us, that he paid for that redemption. And so I think that's the reason, Rod, that the, the rock split open at the earthquake. Um, I, I tell you what I would do, though, if I were in a study and and I wanted and I wanted to see whether there was something about splitting rocks, I would go back and I would look at all the times in the Bible that you see rocks split and see if there's any significance to the work on the cross and all of the passages that talk about rock splitting. So if I were, if I'm coming through that passage and when I was there, I just didn't see it. But as I'm going through those passages, that's the kind of research that I do. I try to find out where in the Bible other things might help us to understand it. And I just didn't do that research, but I think it's good research to be done and um, really not that hard to do. You probably would look up earthquakes and look at all the earthquakes in the Bible. You would look up rocks split, um, rocks tumbling, um, and and see what they are. But I think it has to talk about the significance of that work that was done upon the cross. It even split rocks, saved souls, shook shook the earth. Uh, and there's just darkness around the 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 uh, cross at that same time. <clears throat> that was one of the things that happened. So that was our study uh, that we did last week. All right. So I appreciate that. Um, I thought uh, I thought Q and A was next week. Yes, I think it is. We're both Wednesday and Saturday for us. Um, again, Lord willing, as long as we are able to do it. I appreciate that. So it looks like we do have all YouTube today. Keith, good to see you. Glad to have you here. Just kind of taking care of things. So on my end, Keith, just so you know, all I'm seeing is YouTube. I don't think I've, I'm, I'm, yeah, all I'm seeing is YouTube. I don't think I've seen anything from Facebook at all. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but yeah, we're trying to get it figured out. So if you're new here and you have a question, then write the word question down, then write out your question and then submit it and we'll go ahead and take time to answer it. Uh, we have about another 10 minutes, um, and I'm at the end of the feed here, and I didn't see any questions, so I'm just gonna take a couple of minutes to see if another question pops in here. Well, we do have a question from um, Russell. So sometimes I need to take my time to be able to get other questions. What's the difference between blasphemy and heresy? All right, Russell, so good question. Uh, blasphemy is when you say something about God or to God that is highly offensive, that's blasphemy. And there is real and perceived blasphemy. But um, we see that, that they blasphemed the spirit when they rejected Jesus and said that he cast out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. So that's blasphemy. They said that of the spirit and it was the blast. And, but then there was the blasphemy of the spirit that came after that. They blasphemed, which was not believing. They rejected, rejected, rejected. And that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Heresy is when you teach something that is false. The Bible says that in the last days, there will, men will heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. There will be a lot of, of heresies. Um, I'm trying to think of some common heresies. Well, you think of, you can think of something like Mormonism that has a bunch of gods. And when you talk to a Mormon at your door, they'll be dishonest with you. They'll say, no, we believe Jesus is God. 
but they believed that Jesus was God created by God along with a whole bunch of other people and that they themselves can become God. So they believe that you can progress to being God. That's a heresy. It's a false teaching. There's nothing to support it. Uh, if someone believes, if one person believes in pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib, those one of the one of two of those are not true. Then there's pre-rath, so we say four of them are not true, or three of them are not true, but one of them is. I just should just say one of the views about the tribulation and the rapture of the church are true. The other ones are not heresy. They'll they're they're not true, but heresy is when you are teaching something that is radically against the scriptures. And we we have a tendency to call somebody a false teacher when they're when they get something wrong or to call something someone a heretic um, when they get something wrong, but everybody's going to get something wrong, right? Because we're all human. And although you think you might hear from God all the time and you would never make a mistake, you do end up making a mistake and end up believing something um, that is not true. So it's a great question. Blasphemy. When you blaspheme God, you say something about God that is blasphemy. And that's why Jesus said, I, that he was the son of God. And from here on out, you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory. The high priest cried out blasphemy and tore his robes because Jesus was claiming to be, to be God. They also claimed he did it again when he said, before Abraham, I, um, I was, I, or excuse me, before Abraham was, I am. And he's now taking the name of God upon himself. They thought it was blasphemy and picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, for what good works do you, do you kill me for? Do you stone me for? And they said, not because of your good works, but because you being a man claim to be God. So that was blasphemy in their eyes. Heresy is when you teach something that is, that is wrong, not just being wrong about a doctrine, but actually teaching a, a heresy um, like uh, the Galatians were, the teaching that you could be saved by works by going back under the law. That was a heresy. And Paul called it out as such, okay? So thank you very much, uh, Russell, for your question. I appreciate that. Let me see if anybody submitted another question here at the end. Um, so we got another question from Jari. Jari says, um, why do the angels cry to one another, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty? Is it like when we tell our friends how awesome God is? Um, in one passage, they cry to one another. Yeah, it's what, it's what they do. It's what these angels were created for. They, that is, they are fulfilling why God created them, crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You and I were created to glorify God in our own way, to have God's glory inside of us. So um, <clears throat> the Bible tells us through other people to worship God. Some people will claim that God is um, arrogant, that he wants people to worship him. Um, that, that, um, but God's not saying, I demand you worship me. Other people see how awesome God is and encourage us to worship him. And that's kind of like these angels that are in heaven uh, that are crying out as well. All right. Um, we have a question from Miriam. Miriam says, question, uh, new here. Glad to have you, Miriam, here for the first time. Uh, people keep saying, last days, last days. How do you really know we're close to truly the last days? It is so confusing. Thank you. And Miriam, thank you for bringing this question up because I get annoyed with it too. I get annoyed with the date setters. This last September, some people who I respect 
we're saying there's a 99% chance that Jesus is coming back in September of 2022. Here we are in the brink of 2022, and all the people that said Jesus is coming back in 2022 were wrong. No one knows the day or the hour, which means no one knows when he returns. Jesus put it this way, not even the Son of Man knows when he's going to return. No one knows. People are always trying to find their little diagrams and figure it out. Miller, William Miller did it in 1844 and caused a great disappointment. People sold their homes and, and put their money into, into spreading the gospel so that people would, because they believed it so much, because he had taken his chart and the days out of, out of um, Daniel and added, made, turned them into years, found a starting point in history and came up with 1844. Uh, Newton did the same thing, by the way, and came up with 2060. But what if you got the wrong starting point? What if that's not days, if those days are not years? using the days or years principle. We find that in scripture, but maybe it's not talking about that. We don't know until we see all of these things happen. I think we are getting close to the end. At the beginning of uh, COVID, we had a pestilence. There were locust swarms in Africa. The Euphrates River began drying up. Uh, there was a war that started here recently that could turn into a world war. Um, Nuclear weapons are being talked about. Uh, there's a war in, in Samaria. Damascus is, was, is said to, to play a part in the last days. Jerusalem plays a part in the last days. The Jews have returned to Jerusalem. The pieces are set in place, but don't set dates. It's kind of like a, it could be a wrap. The pieces are set in place, but don't set dates. Stop setting dates. We can say, look, in the last days, perilous times are going to come. Doctrines of demons are out there people fit the, the mold for them. So there is a way we are living in the last of the last days. Now, can I also say, Miriam, that the Bible says that we are in the last days because God poured out his spirit on all flesh in the last days. So we are the church age that makes up the last days. But there is the last of the last days. And when people say last days, last days, that's what they mean. Now, Miriam, I do believe we are living in the last days. Could we go a couple hundred more years or a few hundred more years. I don't see how, but that doesn't mean I'm right. Things are so crazy now with the advances that they say they're doing with mankind, with the genetic things that they're doing. It would seem to me that like God had to come down and stop the Tower of Babel to stop them from doing whatever they set their mind to, that God would have to do another event like that. Who's to say he can or won't? in order to slope the progress of technology down. Daniel also says, he said to Daniel, seal these things up until the time of the end. Men will move back and forth on the earth and knowledge will increase. Now, knowledge has increased in the last 50 years. Let's just go back to the invention of the computer. And what was that? You know, well, I guess that was the 60s um, when that happened uh, for the big room computers all over a room. Think about how much that has changed so that we have computers in our hands all of the time. And these are, are powerful, more powerful than what those old computers used to be that they had all over the place. So yeah, knowledge is increasing. Where it's looking more and more like the last days. We, we don't wanna be able to discern the times, what the Bible says about it, but we also don't wanna get carried away. In a parable, Jesus said, occupy until I come. Do the work you're supposed to do until I come. And if we occupy and Jesus returns, we're just going to be awesome. We're going to be found doing what we're supposed to do when Jesus returns. 
Some people get so obsessed with the return of Christ that they are no longer occupying until he comes. All right. Thank you, Miriam, and welcome. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, at our next Q&A, uh, you're welcome to ask a follow-up question about it if I didn't answer all of your questions there or if that made more questions for you, which often happens. Um, we have a question from Rod. I'm just going to look here to see if I can find a question for our next Q&A. It might be the Jeremiah passage, uh, Kimberly. No, the uh, Second Chronicles passage, Kimberly. Um, Rod says, I talk to Jesus every day. A lot of the times I am worried and I say, oh God, I hope or I pray. Is that blasphemy? No, not at all. That's you interacting with your God. You're interacting with him. Um, blasphemy would be, yeah, would be cursing the name of God. Um, saying something bad about God. I don't even want to give you, you know, examples of blasphemy. Um, and, and we may we may look at that more. I may spend, spend some time on blasphemy in the Bible so we can have some clarity on that and heresy. That might be our next question. Um, and, um, John P. says, in various places through the Bible, we read about the fear of the Lord in being afraid. In another uh, place, fear of the Lord is uh, uh, joyous praise and rejoicing. I'm confused. All right, so that could be a good question for our next one. Maybe that's the one we'll do, um, is the fear of the Lord. Yeah, what is the fear of the Lord? I like it. That's a good question. All right. Heavenly gives us another one. Um, you said you had a famous minister, ministry attack you when you first planted the church. Big ministries are being revealed as corrupt. Do you think the Lord is judging the church with everything in the world has gone through and is going through now? It mean, I mean, it seems he is judging the whole earth. Yeah. Um, and I think God's just judging his church, which should make those of us that are in ministry. Um, Peter said it's high time for judgment to start in the house of God. If God's going to judge the world in Revelation, and we indeed, Miriam, are on the very brink of Jesus returning, then God's going to judge his church first. And maybe that's what's been revealed in these, these revelations, which seem to be silly the way that some of them got caught and the things that they covered up. And... Um, so we, we may talk about that later. Heavenly, you're welcome to re-ask that question at our next Q&A, but I'm out of time. I'm actually late. I got a service in about an hour. I'm going to be teaching um, three passages for us for the new year. And um, we'll talk more about that at the beginning of our study. But I really appreciate you guys. Love you. Thank you for being here for this last year. Um, this is, I, I forget how many Q&As we've had now, 100 and, 100 and something, 127, 128. Maybe this is the 128th episode of Truth Quest podcast. So we've been going for over a year, well over a year. And I really, really do appreciate you guys. Um, and I hope that you have a great um, New Year's Eve and Happy New Year. I hope that God blesses you. And I hope you find blessings for the new year. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our message tonight. It's going to be a shortened message. And then we're going to take communion together. You could get your communion stuff together. You could join us online. You could come down if you're in Tucson. I'd love to have you there. Um, we have two campuses. Um, tonight, they'll be at one at the East Campus. On Wednesday night, we have two, one at the West and one at the East on Wednesday night. Um, but I appreciate you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. I'm out. Got to go. Um, but um, walk close to him. Continue to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right? Lord bless you. We'll see you later on.